Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. This morning we come to one of the most important passages, not only in Luke's gospel, but truly in all of the Bible. Here we see the fulfillment of God's promises come to one of the most unexpected places as the coming birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, is announced to a young peasant girl. It's an announcement this morning that not only changed the world, but I hope as we hear it uh, afresh again this morning, it will change our lives as well this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through uh, uh, excuse me, 26 through 38 today, and there's a lot that we want to cover, so we're going to get right to it. If you are uh, a note taker this morning, and you usually take notes, and you've looked at the note sheet this morning, you see there are several more blanks than usual, usual, and I think we are giving out gold stars today to anyone who gets all the blanks filled in. Our passage opens with these words, these words. I invite you to follow along. Luke chapter 1, begin at verse 26. In the sixth month of the angel, excuse me, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. As we begin unpacking and understanding this announcing of the coming of Christ, we first want to see in these opening verses a declaration of grace. A declaration of grace. Specifically, we see this is an unexpected declaration. It's an unexpected declaration. The angel Gabriel is actually only mentioned uh, four times in two different books. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. He's mentioned twice in the book of Daniel, twice in the book of Luke. And I bring that up because it's something of a caricature I think we often have in our minds about the Bible, rather than a true picture of the Bible. And we have this belief that somehow angels were always around. They're always uh, coming from heaven and speaking to men like some kind of divine mail carriers, and that it was no big deal to see uh, this angel show up. But the reality is the word angel only occurs about 200 times in the Bible, and all of those references are kind of actually clumped together in terms of their actual appearance in redemptive history. My, my point in telling you this is that angelic appearances in the Bible are actually pretty rare things, especially when we consider the thousands of years that God is at work uh, saving his people. Uh, only in the most momentous of times, the important occasions in God's plan are angels making an appearance. And so it's not surprising that this is an unexpected thing for Mary. She's not just like, oh, look, there's an angel. Isn't that nice? No, Luke says when Gabriel came to her and said, greetings, O favor, when the Lord is with you, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary is wondering what in the world is going on. Who is this being that just showed up? Why is he telling me that I'm favored? It would have been unexpected, but it also would have been terrifying for this young woman given her age. In the opening verse, Luke says that she is a betrothed, a betrothed virgin. Now, historical sources tell us that the common practice of the day means that she would have been anywhere from 13 to about 16 years old. Now, culturally speaking, the, the concept of adolescence is actually a fairly new thing. Uh, up until about 100 years ago, there was no such thing as adolescence in all of human history. Um, and people moved from childhood into adulthood much more cleanly and clearly than now. Nevertheless, though she was a mature 
teenager for her age compared to teenagers today, she's still a young lady. Just six months before this, the same angel showed up to an aged priest who'd kind of been there, done that, seen it all, and he scared, scared his pants off practically. And, and so you can imagine how frightened this poor young girl must have felt. Even more unexpected than the declaration itself, though, was the unexpected grace that this declaration brought. This is the second thing that we see, the unexpected grace. She's obviously troubled, and the angel immediately comforts her. He says, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. What does it mean that she has found favor with God? What is favor? Well, favor is really another word for grace. It's getting something that you don't deserve. Grace is God's unearned love and blessing. Now, why would God be blessing her? Why would he be looking favorably upon her? Again, who is this woman, Mary, that we've just been introduced to? Consider what we know about her. Luke says, not only is she a virgin and betrothed, but she is from a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, that's significant because of how insignificant the town is. In fact, it's not mentioned in any other important biblical work that we have because no one famous had ever come from there before. So the town of Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the ancient commentary in the Old Testament called the Talmud, and it's not mentioned in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus. It's just a small little farming town between two slightly larger cities that maybe, maybe had a hundred people in it. It was a place you went through from town to town, not a place you went to. Later, when people heard that Jesus, possibly the Messiah, was from Nazareth, they were incredulous. And they said, can anything good actually come from Nazareth? So this was like the ancient Israelite equivalent of Podunkville, USA. It's just, it's out in the boondocks. Nobody knows about it. Nobody hardly cares about it. Why in the world is God's grace coming to this poor girl that's here? And that's what Mary was. She was a girl in a culture that often discounted women. Worse than that, she's not even married. She's simply betrothed. From a human perspective, Kent Hughes is surely right when he says, Mary is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet, it is to this young woman that God's grace came. She is the one who is favored by God. She is the one with whom the Lord is pleased. It's important for us to settle this in our minds because so often it is tempting to feel as if because we have nothing to offer to God, because we are not significant in any way, For anybody else in this world, we wonder why God would even bother with us. The truth is, frankly, we don't have anything to offer to Him. He doesn't need us at all. But He offers Himself to us. God's grace comes to the lowly of the lowly. Do you remember what Paul told the Corinthians? He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose you. That verse makes me feel good. To know that God chose the foolish, He chose the weak, He chose the, the lowly. He chose them to be His people, and He still chooses such people today. God doesn't worry if you're somebody in the eyes of the world. He gives grace even to the lowly. And specifically for Mary, the grace that was shown to her came in the promise of a Savior. This is the second thing that we see from our passage this morning. The promise of a Savior. Look at verse 31. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the very heart of our passage this morning, this announcement that Mary will conceive and give birth to a son named Jesus. Now, who is this son? Why is he so special that this angel Gabriel is coming to tell her that that all this is happening to this girl in the middle of nowhere who is nothing in the eyes of the world? Well, Gabriel tells us five things about this son. First, he is a son who will be great. He is a son who will be great. Previously, we looked at Gabriel's announcement of the coming of John the Baptist, and there we saw that he said John would be great among men. But notice here, he simply tells Mary, Jesus will be great, full stop. There's no qualifier. There's no kind of, he'll be great in this context. It is just open-ended. Your son will be great. And that's important because as, as the book goes on, it doesn't matter how significant, how great John is even, Jesus is greater. In fact, in the Old Testament, the same phrase is used, is great. It almost always refers to God himself. Therefore, it's no surprise to us that this is said of Jesus because it's clear from this passage, this announcement, that Jesus will be a son who is great, but he will also be the son who is divine. He is the son who will be divine. The angel says he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. Later, he says in verse 35, he will be called the son of God. Now, surely you have to stop and wonder how much of this is sticking in Mary's mind at this point, how much is she actually grasping and understanding? Not because she's stupid, not, not, not because she's an ancient people who doesn't know anything, but think about she is, from all that we know, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, she is a good and godly Jewish young woman. And she knows the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, how in the world am I going to have God's son? How in the world is he going to be divine? It would have almost been unthinkable to her mind. Yet this is what the angel says. This son, Jesus, that you will have, he will be divine. He will be the son of the Most High. And that is what Christians have believed and taught and even died for ever since the resurrection of our Savior. Think about the great privilege. Think about the great joy of Gabriel declaring in clear terms for the very first time the mystery of the triune God. This son will be divine. But third, he will also be human. He will also be human. The son will be human. Now that may seem obvious, but again, it's essential to make the point because it's not always so obvious. In fact, some of the earliest people in Christianity, when they were trying to wrestle through this mystery of the incarnation, of the infleshing of God, they would fall off um, the, uh, the, the orthodox doctrine in one of two ways. And frankly, people make the same mistake today. Uh, Scholars and supposed Christians. Some would say, well, he's not really God, right? I mean, how how could he be God when there's only one God? That's called Arianism, and it's a heresy. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not even what this passage teaches. Then others will look and say, well, he's not really human, right? I mean, he just he just looked human because after all, how could God really become man? And that's called adoptionism or docetism or Apollinarianism, depending on who's teaching it. And it's heresy. That's not what the Bible teaches. What does the angel say? You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. Jesus was conceived supernaturally, but he was born like all of us. He was flesh and blood. He cried as a baby. He messed his diapers and had to nurse. He grew older and got sick and learned to walk and talk. He learned to give hugs and kisses and help care for his younger half-brothers and sisters. 
Luke will tell us at the end of the next chapter, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was fully divine, but he was also fully human. Why is that significant? Why is that so crucial to God's plan? Because at the end of the day, we have a problem that exists between us as humanity and God as God. There is a gulf between the divine and the human. And therefore, the way to bridge that gulf, the way to bring about a perfect mediator between God and man, is to have a man who is God, who can fully represent the divine and fully represent us. Sinful creations to the perfect creator. And in doing so, this brings us to the fourth thing that we learn about the Son. We see that Jesus is the promised Son who will save. Jesus is the promised Son who will save. Now at this point in the Gospel, nothing is explicitly said about God's saving work for His people. But notice what Gabriel says. You shall call His name Jesus. Why is that important? Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. It's, it's no accident that this is what he was called. It's no accident. Jesus, God didn't say, you know, okay, Jesus, you're going to, you're, you know, uh, my son, you're going to take on flesh. And I don't know, what should we call you? Uh, what, kind of, what, what name do you want? You know, they didn't have like a divine lotto going and say, oh, this sounds good. No, it was intentional because the name spoke to his mission. This was the purpose for his coming to save his people from their sins. Through him, the Lord would bring salvation. Even Matthew, in his gospel account, where Joseph receives a vision of an angel telling him the same kind of thing that is being told to Mary. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus speaks to the very mission of his coming. This is why Jesus is coming. Because the ultimate problem of all humanity is sin. It's sin. Therefore, we need a Savior. You know, if you watch television today or listen to the radio or stream shows on whatever iDevice you have or whatever you do to stay informed about the world, uh, listening to news programs and talk shows and whatever else, you, you invariably will see there's all kinds of terrible things going on in the world, both domestically and internationally right now. There's rockets being fired. Um, there's babysitters who do terrible things and it's just you, 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 you see all the time commentators and celebrities uh, and pundits and psychologists they're all trying to give their two cents about why these things happen or not what, what is the cause of all of these problems and these uh, these disasters and none of them get it right none of them get it right they will point out a lack of education or poverty or discrimination or a breakdown of the family. And I'm not saying those things don't exist or they aren't problems, but that's not the root problem. That, that's not the final and ultimate cause of the breakdown of society. The ultimate and final cause is sin itself. That's the only explanation for why this world is broken the way it is. <coughs> God has created this world perfect to run in an orderly way. So that life will exist in happiness and joy and peace with Him. And we've said, no thanks, we don't like that plan. We don't want you to rule over our lives. We want to rule our lives. I'll run my life instead of you. And like a rocket that tries to, to enter orbit without enough fuel and thrust, whenever we, whenever we try to rule our lives, the 
gravity of our foolishness brings everything crashing back down and falls apart. That's foolish. And God in his grace will send a Savior. A Savior who willingly comes into this sin-ravaged world and bears the weight of our sin upon himself and who dies for us on the cross, absorbing the weight of God's wrath death cannot hold this promise then for he is the son of the most high God therefore he is also a son who will reign number five a son who will reign Jesus saving work not only involves his substitutionary death but also his glorious resurrection and reign Gabriel says that the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David Jesus will be king and as the promised king his reign will be the fulfillment of a promised reign of a promised reign Notice again that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now what is that about? Well, frankly, we, we could spend all afternoon doing that, but already the food is smelling good, so let's just give the cliff notes. First of all, Jesus coming and his saving work and his ruling, it wasn't just something that happened. This, is, this has been planned long, long ago. And we see, even all the way back in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eden as Adam and Eve, the very first people, experienced temptation at the hands of the serpent. And they failed to endure that temptation. They failed to trust God, believing themselves more wise than he. And they rebelled against his word. And after God issues a curse on our first parents, and all creation because of their first sin, he also shows them grace. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that Eve will one day have a son who will be bruised by the same serpent who tempted her, yet he will crush the serpent's head. In other words, he will endure temptation by the serpent, and he will be bruised, but he will deliver the death blow to the serpent, so that he will no longer be able to tempt humanity in the same way again. And Eve has a son, Abel, full of faith in God, but he is killed by the murderous hand of the serpent. Mary has many other sons, but none ever Centuries later, God calls a man named Abraham to be his servant. God promises to this old, childless man that a son will be given to him, and through that son will come an entire nation of descendants. And through his offspring, the entire world will be blessed. A son named Isaac is born miraculously as God promised. And through him comes the nation of Israel. But he never fully brings about the promise. Then a further descendant of Abraham, an Israelite of the tribe of Judah, a young shepherd boy named David, who loves God, is shown favor and anointed king over all of Israel. And God promises that unlike his predecessor Saul, David's house will always rule over Israel. In other words, as long as there is a king on the throne, it will be a Davidic king. His dynasty of descendants will reign, and one of his sons will even be considered God's own son, and he will reign forever. Grows old and dies in his bed, and Solomon takes the throne after him. But Solomon is killed to allow his idolatry to flourish in Israel, and he also dies in his bed without an eternal reign. And in the days of Isaiah the prophet, God confronts another wicked descendant of David, an evil king sitting on the throne, and God says, The sign of your judgment. A sign of your judgment and the defeat of all wickedness for which you represent is this. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And now, hundreds.
hundreds of years later, they end the baby and set foot in heaven, announces the coming of God's own son. And he reveals that by the godly line of Eve, through the descendants of Abraham and by the lineage of David comes Jesus, the son born of a virgin. Suddenly, it's revealed that all of human history has been leading up to this very point. All of human history has been the slow but faithful fulfillment of God's promises over time. This promise of the Son that keeps growing and building with all of this weight of importance attached to it. And suddenly now, this is that Son. This is Jesus who will be the Savior of the world. He will crush the head of the serpent, the source of sin and evil that wells up within us. And he will put to death our enemies that we might live once again in peace with God. Jesus is the promised son who will reign. It's not only a promised reign, it's also an eternal reign. It's an eternal reign. The angel says he will reign forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus has come, the Bible says, to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Not just over his people, but over all creation itself. Even sin and death and the everyday circumstances of our life. As the righteous king, Jesus is one who reigns like a shepherd over his people. A shepherd over his sheep, caring for them, protecting them, providing for them. And frankly, this is one of the things that should give God's people, should give us the most hope in the midst of our lives, even in the worst times. And that is this, Jesus is and will forevermore reign as king. And what gives us hope more than anything is that one day the exercise of that reign will be realized in its fullness. Right now, God is patient with sinners. God is tolerant of Satan. But one day that that will come to an end. He will return to this world with such destructive judgment, the world itself will be destroyed. And that God will remake a glorious creation with outstanding responsibility and standing. So even now, in light of that, in light of that promise, assured victory, when illness comes, we remember the eternal reign of Jesus. When a dear loved one dies, we remember the eternal reign of Jesus. When our company closes up shop and we lose our jobs and all appears without hope, we remember the eternal reign of Jesus. When family members or friends go off to war, we remember the eternal reign of Jesus. When we are tempted to sin, we remember the eternal reign of Jesus. When we encounter disillusionment and resistance as we seek to make disciples of all nations and are tempted to fear, we remember reign of Jesus. This is an amazing promise of the Son, but how will it happen? How is the Son going to come about? It's going to require a display of power. A display of power, which is the third thing that we see from verses 34 through 37. The display of God's power. In verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. In this display of power, first we see the promise of God's power. The promise of God's power. Remember how Luke introduced Mary? 
He only described her in two ways. She was a virgin and she was betrothed. By implication, she's a godly young woman saving herself for her husband. Now the angel has told her, you will have a son. And Mary's first question is not, I don't believe it. It's, how is that going to happen? Again, you sometimes, sometimes read scholarly works or stupid books by people like, Bart Ehrman, and they're like, you know, oh, the ancient peoples were dumb. You know, they just thought, you know, pregnancy spontaneously happened, and it was the hand of the gods. They're not dumb. I mean, if nothing else, they're an agrarian people. They, they know how this works, okay? And she's thinking to herself, how is this going to happen? How, well, there's no way. I have not been with my husband yet. We're just betrothed. That is, with, there is the promise of marrying. There is an assurance that, yes, I'm going to marry him, no one else. We're essentially married, but we don't live together. We haven't consummated anything. There's no celebration. Therefore, how am I going to become pregnant? And so the angel explains God's plan. God's supernatural power will create life. God is going to do this thing. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And again, despite what maybe you even think here today, or at least what you hear from people who write books and speak and who shouldn't on the History Channel. This, was not, this is not some borrowed pagan myth of sexual intimacy between the gods and humanity. Okay? This is not Zeus coming down and disguising himself. No, just as the God of the universe spoke creation into existence by the power of his word, so now he creates within Mary a human embryo, and the second person of the Trinity unites himself to that human tiny person. This is the doctrine of the virgin birth, and unfortunately it's become quite popular to downplay the virgin birth myth. You have people who find it so unbelievable that Christians think it's better just not to worry about it and not to talk about it. So you have some secular scholars who say Mary was probably attacked by a Roman soldier, and that's the father of Jesus. You have others who say that Mary was not as godly as she appears to be and have literally called her a lying whore. Now, my thought is you shouldn't say that about anybody's mom, but especially not about Jesus' mom. Even some Christians devalue this doctrine. One very famous supposedly Christian pastor has said that if the doctrine, if the doctrine of the church is like a set of bricks that have built up into a wall, he's not sure how taking out one small brick like the virgin birth is going to make the whole wall fall down. In his best-selling book, he says this, quote, Would we really lose anything in the Christian faith if we didn't have the virgin birth? End quote. Well, the Bible seems to say if you lose the virgin birth, you lose Jesus. You lose the display of God's power in bringing about a long-promised Savior. You lose the man who was God, the only person born without sin and Son of the Most High. If Mary is lying and Jesus is lying about how all this came about, you lose the integrity of the Bible. So yeah, if you lose the virgin birth, you lose Christianity is what it comes down to. And here God not only promises to display his power through the conception of Jesus, but he also gives Mary a sign that this will happen. And in verse 36, then we see an assurance of God's power. The assurance of God's power. You you can imagine Mary is in shock right now. It's not just an unexpected message about an unexpected grace that promises a divine son who will save his people and reign over the world, but it's going to be accomplished by the power of God himself as he overshadows Mary by his spirit. I mean, I would be thinking, this is a bad dream. What did I eat last night? But notice, unlike Zechariah in the previous section, who asked for a sign, Mary doesn't ask for a sign. She doesn't say, I'm not sure this is going to happen. 
you give me something? She simply says, how is it going to happen? And Gabriel has explained that, but then it goes a step further and says, Mary, God's already given you a sign. Just, just to assure you that his power is great. He says, behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, a son though she was called barren. Gabriel's like, look, six months ago I should have been your cousin's place, and now she's been expecting ever since. God wants her to know that though this sounds impossible, it is nothing for him. For him, he's already done something similar. And verse 37 makes it all clear. Nothing will be impossible with God. This is one of those verses you need to write down on a card and stick it somewhere when you sleep every night. This is one of those verses you need to type up and make a, some kind of pretty wallpaper for uh, your computer or take a picture of it and, and keep it as a background on your phone. Whatever it is, this is one of those foundational verses upon which you can rest your faith and build your life. With God, nothing is impossible. Because frankly, that is what we're tempted to believe. No, that's impossible. That can't happen. And because it can't happen, I'm not going to pray about it. Because I'm not going to pray about it, I'm going to fret about it. And now I'm just going to be a big worry wart and not actually go out and do what God wants me to do. That's how we live our life. But if we truly believe that nothing is impossible with God, there becomes a confidence and a boldness and an assurance. Not that we're going to get whatever we want, but that nothing is impossible. All bets are off. The, the gates are wide open. God can do as He pleases. And therefore we ask for those kinds of things before Him in faith. I love what Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle says, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's power. So when we are tempted to doubt the power of God, we can go right back to the very beginning of Jesus' life in this world and see a display of God's power. We can see Him restore life to Elizabeth's barren womb, allowing her to conceive. We can see Him create life in Mary's virgin womb, knitting together the human body of His own son, Jesus. And when we sit back and we try and take all of this in, what should our reaction be? What should our response be to what we have seen? The amazing thing is that Mary herself steps into the midst of this act. Here in the very last verse of our passage, we see a response of faith. We see in her a response of faith. In commenting on Luke chapter 1, Martin Luther says this, O oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. You are the crown of them all. That very well might be true. But we have to ask ourselves, is that what she was thinking about right now? Is that how she felt about herself right now? Think about her situation. She's about to become pregnant and she's not married. According to the law... She could actually be stoned for such a thing. Rumors are going to be flying about now, this small little town where she cannot hide. Sideways looks will begin, unkind remarks. Even in Jesus' day, many of his enemies used to joke about his parentage, mocking with hints and innuendo about the fact that someone other than Joseph was his father. That says to us that for 33 years, it never went away. It never let up for Mary. Of course, those people were right, but not in the way they thought. More than that, though, have you ever considered that she's thinking now, my life with Joseph is over? We know, again, he's a godly man. Matthew tells us he's a godly man. And when he learns that, that Mary is pregnant, apparently from infidelity, he is going to quietly divorce her. 
Mary knows what kind of a man Joseph is because that's whom she's betrothed to. That's the kind of man she wants to have, a good and godly man who loves the Lord. And she realizes he'll have nothing to do with me at this point. I talked to little girls today who dream of their wedding and married life. She's facing the loss of reputation, the loss of security, the loss of her husband, the loss of everything she wanted or known as a normal life. That's, that's all in front of her right now in the midst of a few moments as the angel gives her this message. How does she respond? Verse 9. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Mary responds to all these things with faith. Specifically is a faith that serves. A faith that serves. I am the servant of the Lord, she says. She knows, I'm not here to serve myself. I'm here to serve my master. I'm here to serve you, O God. That's her attitude. That's her mindset. And in some ways, God has put this huge thing on her. He's given her this amazing mission, but it's also a weighty one. It's one that will weigh on her over the course of her entire life. In the next chapter, one prophet even says that having this son will be like a knife through her heart. Such will be the pain that she will go through. Why she's there. She understands why she's been brought into this world. She understands why God has created her. Unlike so many of us, Mary gets it. She is there for one purpose and one purpose only to serve the living God. She responds with a faith that serves as well as a faith that submits. A faith that submits. Some of us have our whole lives planned, or we used to. We think we know what we want to do, what kind of jobs we want to have. We think uh, we have our plan for climbing the corporate structures of this world. We know perhaps if you're young and unmarried who you want to marry. Mary herself probably had all those things laid out in her mind, perhaps in simpler terms than us. But God comes along and says, no, drop all those things. I've got another plan for you. Carry, deliver, and raise the Savior into the world. That's my plan. And what does she do? She submits to God's plan. Let it be to me according to your word, she says. There's no hesitation. There's no pause. There's no Gideon like, well, let me lay out the fleece tonight and I'll get back with you in the morning, God. Now, much like her son 33 years from now, she simply says, your will be done. We don't worship Mary, but we should honor her for her faith. More than that, we should follow her example of faith. She was a sinner like all of us in need of a Savior, but she loved God and was willing to trust Him even when it meant great loss to herself. I think, frankly, young people here today, she is especially an example for you. Earlier I talked about this thing we've made up called adolescence, which one person has defined as the time when kids get to be immature, irresponsible, and rebellious, and it's assumed that's a natural life stage. You get to get drunk and party and sleep around and do stupid things and say, oh well, I'm an adolescent. Those days are even worse now because it doesn't just extend through junior high and high school, but it goes on into college and into adulthood. And we have people who never want to actually grow up. Young people look to Mary as an example. How old was she? 13 or 14? 15 or 16? And God comes and says, this is what I have for you. This is the life that I have planned out. I didn't ask you if you wanted to do this. I didn't consult you. I didn't look at your calendar and say, will this fit in? I have determined this is the joy and the privilege of serving that I have laid out for you. And what does she do? She trusts him. She 
So young people, don't use your age as an excuse for laziness or disrespectfulness or sexual immorality or narcissism or any other display of ungodliness. Don't waste the precious time that God has given you by messing about with sin. Walk with God. Trust God. Lay your life down before God. So follow Mary's example and say, Behold, I am your servant, O Lord. Let my life be according to your fulfillment through his son as a display of his power and faithfulness and grace. Jesus will be the promised son who comes as the savior of the world who reigns in righteousness over all things. What can we do but stand back and marvel at God's faithfulness, rejoice in his grace and worship his glory through lives of humble, trusting servants Father, may that be true of us. May this amazing account. Not some fable, not some fairy tale, not some borrowed pagan myth, but historical reality of your servant from heaven coming and speaking to your servant on earth and telling her of the wonderful news of the coming of your son, Jesus. Oh God, what an amazing thing. Not only that we know that this happened, but that we have before us through Luke's careful hand and Mary's testimony, the accounting of what took place, the words that were spoken. Grace that will be yours. God, may we stand back and truly marvel at this. But God, may we do more than that. May we believe the truths that are here. And may we follow the example of Mary saying, God, a faith who is, who is willing to lay everything aside serve you. Father, may we be so trusting. May we be so obedient. Not because Mary is so trustworthy, but because Mary's Son, our Savior and